not in Sam Howlton's studio. Uh, how did you find the icebreaker? What did you think of the icebreaker? Interesting, the last question floored me completely. I noticed, I noticed. <laughs> Which leads us nice naturally into the, the start of this podcast. Right, you mentioned just before we switched hit record, you mentioned that you listened to the Mandy Bostwick episode, which is number ninety nine. Yeah. And so, what was interesting about that episode for you then, as someone who with experience in nursing, caring for people, and also on the mental health side? Um, it was the fact that she, for, for years, I'd I'd sort of recognised my own trauma and um, I'd known that it was sort of physical rather than mental so although it originated that the sensations that my body would feel would originate from from memories that my brain would trigger it was very much a physical experience not a mental health experience so to me it was never I'd never felt it was a mental health condition I felt it was a physical condition that was caused how did you know that just the way my my, because although you, although when I was triggered, for example, I'd have particular thought processes. It was how it would make my body feel. It would make me feel exhausted. It would make me dissociate. Which I wouldn't use. Wouldn't use the word lucky because you'd rather it hadn't happened at all. But um, I sort. If I dissociate, I, I operate on rubber time. So I'll look at the clock and I'll think ten minutes have gone by and it's four hours. But I can still do everything I need to do. Um, you know, I'm still safe to be around. Um, but yeah, so I was. What I sort of really related to was when she was talking about how when all our systems are breached, when we think we're going to die. Basically, whether or not they come back online is dependent on how many times it happens, what happens after those systems are breached. Um, and <clears throat> I realised that I'd actually found my own way of coping with the fact that I was those people that sort of one of those people who'd reached the point of no return. And I kind of accidentally gone about um, basically separating my own self from my mind which was actually controlling my body if you like um, and that was what Rocks Recovery helped me to do so yeah that's what I thought I'd, um, I'd sort of talk about today what took me up to that mm. point I was, talking to someone about, I was talking to someone by chance about Mandy's episode on uh, I was talking to them on Saturday and it's in the rugby context and mm. we were talking about CTE and concussions and uh, and the onset of Alzheimer's and things like this in <coughs> rugby players now which is quite prevalent but I was explaining about how uh, and TBIs I was explaining how brain injuries like minor or major and things like concussion and that like a large well a huge if not, if not the entire percentage of what that is down to, mm. is neuroendocrinology, yeah. like brain hormones. And the <coughs> person I was explaining it to, I'm gonna, I, I need to send him the, the Mandy podcast. Mm. I need to send him the uh, Mark Gordon. Have you listened to the Mark Gordon yeah. episode? I need to send him that one as well. But he couldn't believe it. It's like, and that's what Joe. That's what Joe. Um, mm. That's what Joe public. Like the average baseline sort of understanding is they think a mental something that is mani manifesting itself mentally in the like in, in your psyche 
is entirely to do with just the way you think and you can sort it out by talking and blah 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 and, so, and you can alleviate it some mm. ways like that but and a massive part of it is literally like it's you, mm. you your point the physiological side is literally this, this hormone imbalance is going on in the brain yeah. and it can you can simplify it to that level it's not yeah. simple doesn't mean it's not easy mind or not com- mm. not not a complex thing but you can simplify it that way uh, I completely hijacked where you're going with that then so um So explain your background for people, please. Because because it's interesting that you made the connection between that you were able to see that it was a physiological thing that was causing your mm. mental the, your mental state, but also causing the uh, tiredness and mm. and all the rest of it. Because and I think you were probably only able to do that because you had knowledge of the human body. Yeah, yeah. Um. So my background is in, my professional background is in nursing. Um, I was a research scientist before I was a nurse. Uh, But nursing was really my vocation. I absolutely love it. I still do it now, but just not as much. Um, But I, I did, I, throughout my life, from the time I was born, I experienced significant trauma um, and repeated trauma, physical and mental. And what I started to notice was things in that I was feeling myself, I was seeing in patients. So I remember we had one guy and he would come in again and again and again and he he, I have to be quite careful that I don't accidentally identify someone because nurses have to be quite careful because we don't have to, necess- if we give a scenario, we don't have to give somebody's name, address and telephone number to, to, to breach confidentiality. So if I, if I slow down, it's literally just because I'm trying to th- yeah, no worries. think. If I walk um, behind you like I'm doing now, so adjust the light. Yeah. So we <laughs> had, um, we had this uh, chap that used to come in again and again and again and he used to say, um, I'm I'm at risk. I'm a risk to people. I'm going to hurt people. And I remember the one day, I remember saying to him, "What's your background? What 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 did you do?" And he'd been he'd been all over the world. He'd he'd been in the army for 26 years, and he'd been all over the world <coughs> in the most horrendous conflicts. And he had become convinced that he was still a danger to people. And I remember just giving him a hug and saying, well, I'm not scared of you. So let's sit down and talk about it because I could see that all of these processes were kicking off in his body that were making him feel things. And he, he was sweating, you could see his heart. The one day his heart was almost beating out of his chest because um, his heart rate was so elevated and his respiratory rate and he was sweating so much and I just remember just giving him a hug and saying let's just see if we can get you to, to, to calm down to re-regulate yourself actually calm down is probably the worst thing you can actually say to someone when they're distressed but if you say it in the right way in the right context um, and when I actually started to get information 
from him, this was a fair few years ago, I eventually got him to refer self-refer to combat stress and um, because that was all that was available back then, this was quite some time ago, and he he stopped coming, stopped frequenting A&E because he started to get a handle on it and he realised that when he was triggered, he wasn't a risk to people. It was the things that he'd done in the past. I had another, uh, another person um, came in who, and this was fairly recently, and again, I have to be quite careful, quite generic, um, but she was... the she the nurse that handed her over she came up to me and she said oh she said um she said uh, alcoholic fallen over in the street really smug I thought really I thought I'll be the judge of that I'm the qualified nurse here not you so this person had come off an ambulance and um I walked in the cubicle and drunk people smell like drunks so alcoholics <coughs> smell like drunks. So one of the things you do, if you walk in a cubicle and you take a really deep breath through your nose, and I couldn't smell alcohol. And I said, well, it's been handed over to me that you've fallen over in the street because you were drunk. And so what did you drink? Half a bottle of vodka. Okay. And I said, and when did you drink that half a bottle of vodka? About two or three hours ago. I said, so you're now almost sober and I can't smell alcohol, which tells me that you haven't had a drink for a really long time before you had that because your body's processed it really quite quickly. Um, and basically, it turned out this person was getting to the point where the only thing that worked was they would, they would walk to the, the local shop buy half a bottle of vodka, shotgun it, and go to sleep. And they'd do it every six weeks or so. And I, and that was the only time they ever drank. So that isn't even binge drinking. So I said, so what is that helping you to cope with? Because you haven't come in with a drinking problem. You've come in because you need to black something out. That's what we need, that's what we need to, to get a handle on. Um, and that person, because that was more recent, um, I actually helped them self-refer to Rock to Recovery. And again, um, and this person's life was extraordinary. Again, I can't tell you because you'd be able to just go straight on Google and find out who they were if I told you any, any details. But the, the trauma that this person had experienced in their professional life was absolutely off the scale extraordinary. Um, so... I've gone off at a bit of a tangent now, but yeah, so that was how I started to notice. And I was, I realised I was becoming a bit of a hypocrite because I was seeing all these things in other people and I was, I was caring for all these people, but I wasn't looking after myself. And my <coughs> mental state was going down and down and down at the time. Why? Um, just typical of someone who had, I think, I think it was Sammy Ferguson described it as stacked trauma when it's just one thing after another after another. Um, and I didn't realise that the trauma was coming at home as well. I didn't, I, you know, I, 
I didn't realise just how abusive a marriage I was in at the time. It's very interesting listening to um, Hannah Sheargold. Is it Sheargold? Sheargold, yeah. Sheargold talk um, about uh, covert narcissism. And I was just like, yeah, that was me. And totally brainwashed, completely brainwashed. Um, and I was, I'd really, I'd got to the point where I just thought I was, I was, I, I was just there to help other people. I wasn't allowed to be happy. Other people had to be happy before me. Um, he was, he was literally living off me like a parasite. I was going out to work um, with my my diagnosis. I was I was supposed to be semi-retired at that point. MS. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going out to work full time and more and working extra hours because he wouldn't get a job and obviously had to keep the kids fed and clothed and um, I was just I was convinced that I was just the worst person in the world I um, I and that I was that everyone was better off without me and I just thought and my my plan was and this is how bad it was that I'd actually planned it over a period of time so because I needed it to look like an accident so that the kids would get the life insurance because my will was was sewn up tighter than that's chuff um in terms of you just say tighter than that's chuff yes yeah, sorry <laughs> I just wanted to clarify what you said there okay yeah I do apologize sorry you forget that you're actually just I don't mind yeah. I just you forget that you're actually not just talking one-to-one -to, -one to just another human being. You said being. something. You said something on the icebreaker as well. There's an expression you use in the icebreaker. What was that? Which one? Oh, the, lim the limo. Oh, limos and... and limousines and... Yeah. Um, limousines and... And sensor lights. Sensor lights. Limousines are pe the good people who, who can carry eight people along. And sensor lights are the ones who only do any work when someone walks past. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've, you've normally got a G-spot as well as somebody you can never find them. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my God! Uh, there's a little insight into the, uh, the nursing. Uh, oh yeah, <coughs> nurses are worse than the military for, for for nicknames. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's Sorry. put it back to the serious. <laughs> you you were talking about a Nats chef. Uh, yeah, so I was just absolutely convinced that everyone was way better off without me. Didn't realise how bad I was, and then. I'd I'd even I'd even got a plan. I knew I knew what drug I needed and what dose I needed. Um that it would look like a, an accident and even <coughs> where it was gonna go. Like here, because that's the most likely place you're gonna get a needle stick injury on your um So the palm the palm your hand by? Um, just because on the muscle of the thumb there and the palm yeah just anyway. just sort of there because you know looked like an accident like a needle stick injury like you'd gone to grab something like reflex action uh. she thought you were going to drop it sort of thing um and um the nhs supply chain changed and they changed the size of the syringe so it was too small okay and i thought sorry sorry um and i was a mate of mine was rang me the one night, and I was. Um, did he ring me? No, he texted me, 
And he asked me the question, how are you? And I look back now and I can't actually have wanted to die. I must have known that it was, it was just this desperate way, you know, absolute ultimate way out of how I was feeling and how I was so worried about the kids and, and the future and how everything was going to sort itself out because everything looked so bleak. And it was him that said, why don't you go to Rock to Recovery? Because I was actually honest with him and I said, I'm not good. I said, I'm, I'm in a really, really dark place. And I think, would I still be here now if I hadn't actually been completely honest with him? Um, and he'd been a Marine. And he said, why don't you go to Rock to Recovery? And I said, but I don't have a military number. I said, I've never served in the military. I said, I'm NHS. And he said, just, just tell them your emergency services. He said, they've, they've, they've taken on the emergency services now. He said, just ring them, phone this number and do it now and let me know you've rung them. <coughs> um, and I phoned up and he said, which service branch are you? And I said, blue light. And he just put me straight through and the rest is history. So, yeah. So that was... 2019. Do you think maybe it's not that he didn't re? You said there that he. You think maybe he didn't really want to die because you said you because you said yeah I'm not good and you you opened up and that. Or do you think I I see I think it's more likely that you you wanted to, right? I, I'm thinking my own mm. my own perspective as well. You wanted to <coughs> but at the same time mm. something deep in you knows knows it's wrong, mm. knows it's wrong and still hopes yeah that there's some way ar- away from it. Mm. I think yeah. You know. Yeah, I think you're right. Because like you, because even at that low state, you, 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 your mental state still peaks and troughs. It's just everything is shite. It's yeah. either It's either super dark mm. or super super dark. Yeah. You know. Um. And when you're super super dark, or like r- really at the bottom, there's no. You're not even. You're not answering mm. the phone. <laughs> this is it. You're not answering the phone. You don't. You don't. And you know, I was not convinced the kids were better off without me, and that the only thing I was any good at was was my job. Um, and I'd got, and there was me thinking, well, I've got my death in service benefit as well. Um, and it was, it, it, to me, it was a logical plan. And that was what was quite. It is, but it only makes sense because your perspective of yourself is so skewed. Exactly. So it's the only reason it makes sense. I've got a, you know, I've got a few friends, uh, who are either, who have either been in this state or are in this state. Um, yeah. Where they think they think they're a burden. If I'm just going to generalise like that, yeah, that's they think I they're felt. a burden on family, friends, society, and it's only because their perspective on themselves is so skewed because their mental state is not where it should be. They just they, everything they look at seems crap, and mm. they, and because of this situation, all they've got to look at is themselves. They're looking inwardly all the time, and if they're looking inwardly all the time and everything is crap, well, they're crap all the time, which is completely wrong. Which is completely yeah. wrong, you know. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It is. It's how it's how your perspective of yourself is so skewed. Um. So yeah. So then I went to Rock's Recovery. I had my first appointment because it's probably pre-COVID. Um. Went to um up to Manchester. Had face-to-face meeting. Is meet that where to. the HQ is? Isn't it? It's down south, isn't it? Yeah, it's Devon. Okay, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Um, I couldn't tell you at the moment because I've had a lot of they've had a lot of move around because they've had to adapt to to COVID. But they used to um, run clinics at various locations around the UK. 
Um, and this one, the closest one to me happened to be Manchester. So I, d I drove up to Manchester. Um, and whilst I wasn't an alcoholic, I was drinking because the trauma was bad. And as soon as I started to get a handle on that, I didn't need to drink anymore. That was when I stopped drinking. And when I started to handle the trauma and basically improve and improve my view of myself and, and feel a lot better, that was when the marriage went down the pan because I wasn't just serving his purposes anymore. Um, didn't realise it at the time, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll come on to that sort of later on. But it's, um, it was the best thing that ever happened, him leaving. But it didn't feel like it at the time for about two weeks. And then it was just like me and the kids sat down one day and we went, bloody hell, someone put diazepam in the water. Because everyone was just so chilled. So, they were so what? Chilled? Yeah. yeah. We all were. We just looked at each other and went, blimey, this is really nice. Yeah. It was it was just amazing, yeah. But um, but no, I the, I think my what were you gonna say? I, I was gonna ask. I don't know if you want to venture down the road, right? But you mentioned ha Hannah Shergold. Mm. So Hannah spoke about like nars a, a, a bad relationship, right? Yeah. Narcissist, narcissism, narcissistic individual, and getting trapped in that. Yeah. And you just mentioned it, but. How does it become that situation? Like, how do you get trapped in it? How does that situation manifest itself to be, to allow yourself to to get into that situation? Well, f well, for me, and this is why I think it's quite an Im important message today. So, when you listen to people like Hannah talk, for example, um, they. People who've had like, I know it sounds like a one-off relationship where they're very, um, what should I say, um, where they become manipulated by one individual. They've got a, a normal to go back to afterwards. After it's all over, it takes a lot of work because your, your thinking, your perspective is completely skewed. But to me, that was my normal because that was how I was brought up. Because my, and this is this is what I was alluding to earlier, and why that last icebreaker question hit me like a cricket bat between the eyes, um, was I was systematically abused by the four adults in my house from the time I was born, basically. So we have my mother and my father and my aunt and my uncle lived in the house my grandmother did as well she was amazing but she was as trapped by arthritis as I was by being a kid and being young Are you the only kid there yeah. yeah yeah only child and my mother is thought to have narcissistic personality disorder very very extreme and they call it FDIA now, which is factitious disorder inflicted on another. It used to be Munchausen's. I didn't think they were diagnosing it in the UK. I read something recently. Well, they don't die. In fact, it's after the Hannah Shergold yeah. 184. 
where I, I read that they diagnose it in mm. America, but they don't diagnose people with narcissistic personality disorder in the UK. Is that, am, I, am I wrong? It's not, it's not so much they don't diagnose it. It's because people, and this is just a thought, because of the, the things that she's, she's actually done. She's now come in because of the, the criminal things that she's done as a result of not realising and having literally no accountability for her own behaviour. She's, she's off with the fairies, basically. Um, I shouldn't say that. Is <laughs> that like your professional diagnosis? Yes. <laughs> yeah, go on, I know what you mean. Um, but, yeah, she... Um, it tends to be that people... It's not that we don't diagnose, it's just that they never present because they don't think there's anything wrong with them. The, it, it's the people around them that drop like flies. So you, you, if, if somebody went to you and said, I'm doing this to my relatives and that to my relatives, but people with narcissistic personality disorder, it can't be a disorder until it's diagnosed. So, and people don't get diagnosed because, um, but I think in some parts of the state, some forms of behavior are criminalized much more readily than they are in the UK, which is why they come into, I think it's more common that people come into services in the States and are diagnosed against their will. So I think that's why it happens in the States, because it depends on which state it is as to what their <clears throat> their mental health laws are. But my, with the with the FDIA, which used to be called Munchausen's by proxy, it, sort of manif it, it doesn't always manifest itself as somebody making you ill to get attention of healthcare professionals. It can be um, making a child ill in order just to get sympathy from anybody. So I never went to the doctors as a child. Um, and she used to physically assault me and she'd all from the top from when I can remember until I was too big for her and too heavy for her to do it she'd get me by the elbow and she would and this goes back to the brain injuries that that, that you know the TBIs that that Mandy was talking about was she'd she'd get me by the elbow and she'd shake me and of course there's no if you've got if you if you block someone's hinge mm. you've they've got nowhere to go there's no shock absorption um, and she'd always do it close to a wall, and I can just, I can remember my head just snapping backwards and forwards. I can remember the pain, I can remember feeling my brain hitting the inside of my skull. Um, and then she'd punch or kick me oh, on the way yeah. back oh, to... Oh, yeah, when it first started that way. About the first time I remember, I was about th two or three. And though that went on until... Um, Yeah, until I was about nine or ten when I was too big for her to do it. And it was it was like weekly. It was like weekly and she and she'd scream at my father, you know, why do I have to put up with this? You know, she's so evil, she's horrible, she's um and my my dad would just trot around her like this like little lap dog because he was so frightened of her. Um and she used to give me bottles of cowpol with the lid off and tell me it was sweeties. I shouldn't be here. I should not be here. Um, I think the worst... The, not Why was she doing that? To, just to make you ill? Not so much to make me ill, but she... It was frustration because she didn't want a child. And she told me 
numerous times that she wished she'd aborted me, that she she wished she'd never had children. She only had children because my, my father wanted a baby. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons my, my oh, sorry, uh, one of the reasons my, my dad was the way he was, was he felt, she made him feel guilty for inflicting me on her. Um, so, um, and basically making it easy for other people to abuse me. So I was sexually abused by my aunt and my uncle as well in the same house. But I'll leave that at that. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it was, she just didn't care what happened to me. So it was either she would, um, she, she wouldn't actually do anything that would directly look like a criminal act. But if she could have gotten away with me accidentally, in inverted commas, dying, that would have been great. And it wasn't that I was, it wasn't that she hated me. She just hated being a pet, having this tie. You know, she, she just wanted all of the sympathy that would have gone with being the, the parent with the dead child, that would she would have had this, this, all of this sympathy forever. And not have to deal with the child again. Yeah. And, and that's what she wanted. She wanted this constant stream of sympathy from being the woman that had the dead kid. How, how do you know that was what she thinks of you? To be honest, it's just, it's just an assumption, but she just treated me, I was an object who had to yeah. reflect to the world what, how, how she wanted to be seen. I was never, I wasn't a person. I was known as the kid. I was never called by my name um, for, for most of my life. To the point that somebody that... But the whole, all of them? Yeah. Apart from my grandmother. Was your grand in the same house? Yeah. Yeah. And my, my grandmother used to stand up to my, my parents. My mother used to tell this story of how when I was 10 months old, she bit me and it was my fault for screaming so loudly. And, and she drew blood. And there was like... Um, my grandmother, um, in her arthritic state, tried to you know, intervene and went absolutely berserk and up the wall and took me, took me off her and said, you know, you can't, you can't do this. Um, and my, it was me and my grandmother, me at 10 months old, this is how screwed up she was, um, that were in the wrong for, for questioning what an amazing person she was. It's, yeah, it's absolutely bizarre. Um, but I was, I was known by everyone in the house as the kid to the point that I was in my, I was one, when I was in my thirties, somebody that my dad had known for forever, who'd known me since I was a child, actually turned around and said, I don't actually know what your daughter's name is. Oh my God. Yeah. Was your, was your, your gran, I take it she was on your dad's side? She was my dad's mother. Yeah. Yeah. And my aunt's mother. I can imagine that your grand and your mother's side was would also maybe been a piece of work. Uh, I think it was her grandmother because my maternal grandmother died when my mother was born, and I think that probably had a lot to do with the fact that she was never nurtured. So, it's um. It's How so? Like it's one thing to grow up with with one lunatic 
Like, I'm, I'm obviously using that word very generally in terms of what that can mean. Like, For like, maniac. <laughs> yeah, but and then you got your dad who is, well, helpless for a bunch of reasons, right? Yeah. And then you got the other two, your aunt and your uncle. Like, mm. to have so three people there who I describe elements of evil about, about them, right, in the same house mm. to bring about that situation. How on earth does something like that happen? Like, what what is going on? Because, so the aunt and the uncle, was it, was it which one of them is connected to your mum? The uncle or the aunt? Neither. The, the, my aunt was my, my dad's, dad's sister. Okay, right. Because what I'm getting at, not what I'm trying to get at, see, I, I, what, I'm, what I'm thinking is, is this all like a, a family bloodline thing with your, with your mum? But it's not, because they're different, different mm. people. They're not all... But my, I think my, my aunt... So I'm trying to work out where it all comes yeah. from, because it's horrific. Yeah. What builds these kind of people? I How know. does it come about? Well, I think, I always said my, my aunt was, she, she was quite a bit older than my father and basically brought him up. And she was the same as my mother. And I always used to simplify it by saying my... Because my father was so downtrodden and mis not miserable, but he was always the joker. He was so emasculated. He was just... Um, and I think he... I think my mother was his normal because of how my aunt was all the time. She was absolutely evil, she was. She, um, when she wasn't getting enough attention in the lead up to my parents getting married, because she wasn't the centre of attention because there was a wedding in the office, she had his dog put down when he was at work. Yeah, and then my dad went absolutely mental, and as you would, and he was the one in the wrong for being so horrible to her and basically wanting to scratch her eyes out because she'd had his dog put down while he was at work. But he was the one in the wrong because of how he'd reacted. So that just tells you everything about the dynamic in in the house of what these people like and what, what my dad had, had normalised. But I... Ultimately... I blame my dad because he was the adult and he was the one that was supposedly sane and normal and he was the one that offered me up on a plate with a fucking bow around my neck because it saved him and years later when um when I had my own children I couldn't tolerate it anymore because I just thought you know this isn't normal all the things that I've been told that are normal unfortunately I am normal how I don't know given everything that's that sort of happened along the way. Um, but my father, after my mother had actually committed a criminal act and was prevented from coming anywhere near me and my, my kids, um, and that was social services and the police that had intervened and that was taken out of my hands because of something that she had done, um, my, my father still desperately, desperately wanted me to be to blame because that would make it all okay and he came he came to my house the one day with a black eye because without without me around as this this meat shield she turned on him and i can remember he stood there with a black eye um berating me saying what do you think you've achieved by taking your mother to court and i said it's not me i wasn't even there 
just because you're not allowed near us, or she's not allowed near us, doesn't mean that we had anything to do with it. You know, it, you, you can't hold other people accountable for the consequences of, of your actions. You know, nobody, nobody can be accountable other than you for the things that you've done. You can put it right. There is so much you can do to put, put these things right. And he was, he was still going on and on at me about all of the things that um, I'd supposedly done. And I'd had to write a statement for the court about the things that my mother had done to me. She when, wrote you like? Yeah. And she, before, before the order was put in place, because she was presented with it, and obviously because she'd got the emotional age of a five-year-old, she couldn't cope. Um, so she, her and my father had, and my ex-husband had actually sat the children down when I wasn't there. Their father had had them for the weekend, sat them down and made them read this statement while my mother sat there crying calling me a liar and the kids just looked at it and went well she's done it to mum as well never wanted to see her again they were absolutely terrified and they haven't seen her since um so they knew and at this time that my father came around to my house and was berating me all the children were there um and my then fiance um and he said um and I, don't, I can't remember, because I, I, I blacked a lot of it out. But in front of the children, the conversation segued, and I said, hang on a minute, so you knew what she was doing to me? You knew how bad it was, you knew how bad the abuse was and what she was letting other people do to me, and you did nothing to make me safe, you did nothing to, to take me out of that situation and protect me, you're, you're my dad. You know, you were meant to love me. And he went, well, you know what she could be like? You just wind her up. My life was all right. I took her out for an hour once in a while, didn't I? And it was my oldest that got him by the elbow and said, I'm sorry, but nobody speaks to my mother like that and showed him the door. Just a different reality, isn't it? It's people yeah. people living in a different reality yeah. and unfortunately expensive other people, which yeah. in this case at the worst was, was yourself. Yeah. When, you, when you're living in a house with four adults as a kid like that, yeah. going on the receiving end of all the worst kind of abuse you can think of what's your coping me mechanisms and ha and what yeah what one what are your coping mechanisms right and, yeah. and two at what point as you get older you start realizing this isn't fucking right as mm. a kid well because of my grandmother i realized really early on really early on and i think that's what i think that's what saved me to be honest because i always i always saw it coming because i knew that she wasn't she wasn't right because I had this example of unconditional love. Um, and I wasn't going to bother getting my PTSD formally diagnosed, but when I had to, um, the, I was actually diagnosed with PTSD as opposed to complex PTSD. And that was put down to the fact that I had the relationship I did with my grandmother. So for me, it was a lot of magical thinking. I used to read a lot. I used to um, go inside my imagination an awful lot, which is really, really common for, I've, I've since discovered, for, for abused kids. And just magical thinking, it's not, it's not lying or anything like that. Well, so what do you mean? It's literally you just create another, another reality. A happy reality. Yeah. That you can pretend to be in. Yeah. Yeah. When, you know, when your bedroom door's shut... Um, you can just be like, 
you, you can pretend it's different than it is. But it's that... Um, but, but going back to the reason, I thought, oh, shoot, sorry, I keep doing that. I keep catching no, the bottom of the microphone, sorry. But when you... Um, but when I was listening to, to Mandy talk, and I thought... Because part of it is about that sort of alternate reality. It's a, with PTSD, for example, it is, it, it's in your mind and your mind is controlling your, your physical processes. So that magical thinking was sort of part of that and I was able to sort of adapt that when I did my work with Rock to Recovery. Um, I'm just stopping for a sec to segue back that's the ms sometimes i lose track of what i'm saying i'd lose i lose the end of a sentence before i Sorry. get to the middle of it i always do it all i do it yeah. all the time and i haven't got ms so you're fine <laughs> you've got excuse i have <laughs> but um but yeah so there's what was i saying yeah so it's the, the the magical thinking but what i was thinking in terms of the relevance for for the podcast is we've all what it does make us very good at is is problem solving, thinking on our feet, pushing forward. And of course, we've stared death in the face that many times. I mean, two actual, well, one, one really obvious one was we were on holiday in Cornwall and um, it was about the th then a couple of nights before we left, each night she, my, my mother had been for a walk on her own and there was like a, a cliff walk, a walk along the cliff path either way. And I was about, I think I was about nine or ten. And the next day, the, the, the one day, I think it was like the Thursday and we were meant to go home on the Saturday, she said, oh, she said, let's all go for a walk along the cliff path. And I was like, that almost sounded like a mum thing to say. Maybe things are changing and I'm, I'm, I'm going to get the mum I've always wanted. And I remember really playing up to her and, like, and, and chatting to her and she went, um, she went, let's have a race. And I was like, wow, this is like mother-daughter stuff and we're actually having a conversation. I was like, yeah, of course I will. And um, anyway, she said, what we'll do, she said, you see that, little, that bench all the way up there? She said, we'll have a race up there and she'll say, she said, we'll see which one of us can get to it first. Um... And I remember thinking, I wonder if she's going to slow down and let me win. And she said, so you take the, the left-hand fork and I'll take the right-hand fork and just run as fast as you can and we'll run up to that bench up there. And I remember I started to run and then she started to slow down. It was all in the gorse. She couldn't see this, this path. Um, and I remember my little legs my arms like barreling away as I ran up this path thinking I'm really going to beat her and then we're going to have this amazing bonding experience when we get to the bench and I went through these these gorse bushes and all of a sudden it just opened up and the path just disappeared and there was a sheer drop down onto like off a cliff and I remember because it was dry because it was sunny and I remember trying to run backwards and my feet skidding and I landed with my bum just on the cliff edge and my legs over lying on my back and I remember thinking right okay what do I do 
So I can't see anything. So I'll flip onto my stomach. So I went onto my stomach and I couldn't see anything to grab onto. So I literally just went to stick my hands in the dirt to pull myself forward. And I looked up and my mother was stood about six feet away from me. And I remember I put my hand out to her thinking, she's my mum and I'm about to fall off a cliff. And she just looked at me, turned around and walked away. Oh my God. And I remember thinking, shit. Okay. So I remember like shuffling. How old were you? I was about, it's about 10. Yeah, it was about 10, nine or 10. Um, so of course, what does that teach you as a child? You know, everybody's dangerous. And if you ask for help, it's even more dangerous. And you get rejected at the, the time in your life when you, you need help more than any other, you can't ask for it because you'll be rejected, you'll be abandoned, you'll be betrayed if you ask for help. Um, so, yeah, so there was, and, and then I, it was my fault for ruining the rest of the holiday because she was in such a bad mood. Just like, okay. Oh, and the other one, the other one was my eighth birthday card, which everyone thought was absolutely hilarious. It said, um, happy eighth birthday, you better behave, you might not see nine. Now, to me, that was just, I was constantly told I couldn't behave, that I was evil, that I was horrible, that I was selfish, I was demanding. No matter what I did, the goalposts were moved. I couldn't do anything right. So for me, I just thought, well, I'm not going to see nine because I can't behave. And she's tried to kill me God knows how many times or let me perish. Um, so... Yeah, I remember I went into anaphylactic shock when I was about 18 and she she was a nurse, my mother, and she put me back in my bedroom. And her face the next morning when I walked out of my bedroom. About 18? Yeah, I was about 18 or 19. Yeah, and I'd gone into the, the nettle rash that we see. It, it looks like nettle rash, but it like spreads all over the body and then it all joins up and then... You know, you get it in the inside of your mouth and in and, and your throat. And I remember I just took like a handful of Puritan because it was so itchy. No other reason. So I probably took a massive dose of Puritan, which is what saved my life. Um, and yeah, and the next morning, so she'd obviously expected me to die in my sleep. Um, but anyway, you, you, were asking, you were asking me about um, um, how do you... What the coping mechanisms? How, well, one, the coping mechanisms, which it, it's more the magical thinking, and you you get very, very good, and this is why I was so good at my job, and other people who've had this kind of childhood trauma <laughs> are so good if they go into the emergency services or the military, because we, when you've had any kind of experience like that, you have to be so good at reading people, because I would have to get up in the morning, and I would have to judge what mood she was in, what she was feeling, how she looked, the look on her face, her body language, everything to see how my day was going to pan out. If I was going to stay alive, I had to be one step ahead of her emotions. And it always used to be a standing joke at work. Send Sam in, because she'll, she'll tell you if they're going to die in the next 10 minutes. Or, you know, 
send Sam in and, and she'll tell you what's wrong with them because I, I could just spot what was wrong with people from, from 50 paces because I had to, because I'd had to analyse and assess and prepare every single day when I got up in the morning for how she was how she was going to be that day and what person did I have to be so I used to have to adapt myself so that's the other thing we're, we're people pleasers we, we completely subjugate our own needs so that basically and it's a survival mechanism because if you can please other people they don't attack you so with these really amenable kids we've always got a smile on our face because I was never and that's the other thing you're never allowed to feel anything you're only allowed to project happiness so even until really really recently and I think when I come on to not what caused my PTSD but what actually triggered my spiral down into PTSD I look back now and I was in I was dealing with situations it was so busy in A&E that day and I was I was running the shift and I was working clinically and, well, clinically running the shift, should I say, because there's two, diff two different ways you run a shift. You, you, you've got your clinical nurses and you've got your sort of management side who are doing all your ambulances and everything else. So we had, um, I, was, I was the clinical lead on the shift. I was working in resus and we had, um, but that day I realised now I was in a full-blown panic attack. And I couldn't even label my own emotions because even at that age, I had never been able to fit. I had never been able allowed, sorry, never been allowed to feel anything other than happy, or or project to the world that I was happy. I was never allowed to say that I was sad, or I was emotional, or I wanted to cry, or or I was enjoying myself. Even even like positive emotions, it was just like it had to reflect how they wanted to be seen by the world. So you're not very good at, you, you know, you've, and we've all got that one work colleague, haven't we, that you see that you're on with them and you just like, thank God for that because they're bloody brilliant. But the life is a car crash outside work. Well, I was that person. You know, rubbish relationships, and but there for everybody else, everyone, the limo, that was me, you know, used to carry everyone. Um, and everyone loved me for it. But, um, but yeah. So when I met my first husband, to me that was normal. So he was... I was a narcissist. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. it was what I was used to. It was all I deserved. It was what I expected. I, sh I, you know, I shouldn't expect anything else, really. So as much as I wanted a nice relationship that was 50-50 and everything else, I thought that's what I was getting because... It's like Hannah explained, they, in the beginning, they mirror everything that you say. So they mirror back at you your, your, your values, your beliefs. So you think you've met this real soulmate. And then there's this slow decline. And then when my, it's like this chipping away at your self-confidence and your self-esteem. To the, you know, you just feel so ugly and worthless and... They'll chip away at your looks. They'll chip away at your personality. They'll just... Everything about you is wrong. And when my eldest was born, that was when he really turned and he was he was a nightmare. He was 
he was a really horrible person. Why, why did it turn then? Not entirely sure. There's, um, there's a woman called Pat Craven who wrote a book called Living with the Dominator about these, these guys and, and women, but it tends to, to be blokes that do them more damage. Um, and they... Sorry, what was the question again? Uh, oh, shit, what was the question? Oh, my God. No, you said about, oh, yeah, why was that? You asked about why did he change oh, why when, did it when change my eldest when he was, was born. Sorry, and it's sorry. very, very common, very, very common, because suddenly your attention is taken away from them and onto this baby. Uh, and it's very, very common for these types of people to, to turn when, when a baby's born. So... Um, Interesting. Yeah. And then when... He, he always used to get quite depressed. So he had three in three years. He used to get quite depressed around the time the clocks went back. And then after my middle son was born, 18 months later, in the October, he went downhill, but he never came back up again. Um, and then my third son was born in... 18 months later in the April and he he was like he was in this full-blown rage by then so I was I was having like this mental illness he was having to I was having to lock myself and the boys this is when I was still pregnant in the bedroom at night because I was just so frightened of him and then he was he physically abusive mm -hmm. yeah but only to me. And when my youngest was about three weeks old, he had a complete... The one night I, I'd, he'd been somewhere, didn't know where, and he was, he was just raging. And I remember he, I'd put the boys to bed. Um, so obviously Rory was like only tiny. Um, and he... He came back in the house from wherever he'd been and he was, I remember he was white with anger, absolutely white with anger. Um, and I remember backing away from him and thinking he's not going to back off. I'm thinking, oh God. They always teach this in nursing school, psych patients never get let yourself, never let the patient between you and the door. And I was like, so I was kicking myself because I got no way out and I was literally cornered in the kitchen and I remember thinking right okay I remember planting my feet and I remember looking at the knife block and thinking shit it's empty and then I remember thinking okay I'm going to go down fighting how long is it going to last how much is it going to hurt and how long is it going to hurt for but I'm not going down without a fight and but worst of all was thinking, what is going to happen to the boys when I'm when the lights go out and I'm not here to protect them? And I just went for it, and he stopped. And I took the boys and I left because I wasn't I wasn't putting up with that. And um, so we just walked out of that situation. I got myself a fantastic job. I didn't want to work full time because I got a tiny baby. I just wanted to be a mum. Um, 
but needs must. So got a really lovely, really good job with good people. Um, worked in clinical teaching for quite a while, which which works. It was nine to five, so it was a bit easier. Um, but my heart was always in emergency nursing. And then just worked myself up, got a really nice house for me and the boys. Um, and then I think my youngest is about six or seven when I met my second husband. But again, didn't... Oh, Nick, as I keep doing that. Don't worry about it. Yeah. That's my work swear word, that it is. It comes through when you knock the microphone. It comes yeah. through loud on the headphones. It doesn't... Oh, that's so all right, when then. people listen back to this, they're not hearing you yeah. clang the microphone. Oh, that's It's okay. just shocking for you. Yeah. <laughs> it does come through loud on the headphones, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 But... Can, um, can, we, can we back, come back a bit? Yeah. Sorry. So when... Uh, when you were still, when you were growing up, you mentioned that uh, the abuse at home mm. tailed off a lot when you got to about 10 years old just because you were getting bigger and it's you know, physically bigger. Mm. And so uh, it's, it's difficult for them to control you, right, as a, as a child is getting bigger. Um, but then you also mentioned that like, you were still there, I think, when you were 18. What, what was that relationship like with your parents, with your uncle and auntie through, through that? That that really significant period of your of your adolescence there, going up to eighteen. What was that like living there? Oh, that was all that was all emotional abuse then. When they couldn't physically abuse me, it was emotional abuse. So they used to tell me that I looked like a whore and a slut and a prostitute, and yeah, it was just all of that kind of. And that I was a I just was a horrible, constant negativity. Yeah, and yeah, I was a horrible person. I was stupid. I'd never come to anything. Yeah, it was just, I'd pretty much moved, because my parents and I had moved away at that point. Um, so I'd actually moved in with my grandmother when I was 16. So, but there were times when I had to go back, which was like the, the anaphylaxis episode, for example. Um, but yeah, it was it was that, that constant... So, so you never had a safe place to go to. You never had any emotional safety. You never had any physical safety. So I think the difference between, say, myself, and this is why it's so significant how I've dealt with that trauma and the the toolkit I've got in place for myself now compared to somebody... And I'm not I'm not belittling it, but somebody who has had one very negative, um, say, narcissistic, romantic relationship who ha- who hasn't had any childhood trauma has got that template of emotional healthiness. Of for normality. Want, yeah, yeah of, of normality, that, that emotional and mental good health to go back to, whereas I didn't. So when I had... So I, when I met my second husband, again, I didn't know any better. And I got somebody who was saying that they were the best parent in the world and mirroring all my values and beliefs back to me and me thinking, thank goodness, you know, I can relax now. And then it was... And, and, and again, when Mandy was talking about... Um, how when when trauma isn't isn't processed and it isn't expressed outwards, there's no outlet for it, and those stress processes are constantly running. 
you end up with autoimmune disorders and diseases. So, of course, um, I started, I had some weird symptoms. I was at work the one day, sat at my desk, I thought I was having a stroke. Typical, took myself off to A&E. Um, and I got there and I knew the consultant and she was so lovely to me. Um, and she said, um, the, they did my bloods and she said, oh, she said, I've, I've booked you in for an MRI scan next week. So we're going to do a CT scan now, booked you in for an MRI and booked you in to see the neurologist next week. But I think everything's okay. So anyway, as they took me into CT, this radiographer comes running out. She went, are you Sam? I said, yes, I am. She said, we've just had a cancellation. We're going to do your MRI now as an emergency. So I had an MRI while I was in A&E, which is almost unheard of. Bringing you this podcast today are the Aardvark Group. Founded in 1982, Aardvark has established itself as a major player in its field, renowned for its exceptional technology and innovative propositions that have supported countless defence ministries, the humanitarian and NGO sectors, and commercial operators in theatres of war and post-conflict environments around the world. Aardvark is foremost a humanitarian organisation working to help rid the world of the explosive remnants of war. Their technologies are uniquely developed by operators for operators, which ensures that every product, system or platform that they provide conforms to the essential criteria of stability, survivability and reliability. Aardvark know that to have a truly lasting positive impact, their technologies must be cost effective. So they've commissioned a number of projects with their research partners to develop technical innovations with the core aim of delivering affordable solutions that can be deployed directly into communities to reduce the incidence of accidents and deaths due to explosive threats. Aardvark are headquartered in the UK with offices in the United States of America and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. You can find out more about them by going to Aardvark. Dot group, not just about the products and services they provide, but also about the incredible work they do to support the military community and military charities. Go to their website, aardvark.group, or find them on social media, the Aardvark Group. So they did this emergency MRI scan, um, and anyway, the consultant came up to me, she, and she said, oh, she said, your bloods are fine. She said, I'm just going to have a look at your MRI and then I'll be back in a little, I won't be very long at all. And she said, and then you can go home. And a mate of mine had said he'd come and pick me up because I was feeling a bit shaken up. Anyway, two hours later, she still wasn't back. And A&E was like a ghost town. I'd never seen it as quiet as it was that day. And um, so I, I knew something wasn't right. And it was just before my, my mate got there to pick me up. So I was on my own and she walked in the cubicle, she shut the curtains and she went, she took my hand and she went, I know you, I'm going to give it to you cold. She went, your brain scan's abnormal. It's not a tumour, it's demyelination. And that was, she went, oh my God, that's worse. <laughs> and um, Demyelination. Yeah, so that means that the, the coating of the nerves is coming away. So if you imagine, you've got a standard lamp on your floor and there's a wire running to the socket. So you flick it on at the socket and the bulb comes on. Yeah, so it lights up. Now, if you go and hack a big hole out of that insulating cable, so there's the wires are exposed, you'll, you'll turn the lamp on, 
you'll turn it on at the wall and it'll burn a hole in your carpet and the bulb won't come on. That's basically what MS is. So the myelin sheath, which is the insulating cable around your nerves, is attacked by your nervous system so that your nerves fire off in the wrong directions. I've never really explained it that. I've got a friend locally, actually. Yeah. Who, um, she's really uh, one, of my, one of my girlfriend's best friends. Yeah. Uh, called Anna, and she's got MS. Yeah. And she posts about it a lot. Mm. And uh, and I've never really understood the me- like the mechanics of what it is. Yeah. To sort of understand what she's going through because it's a it's a MS is a a, a difficult one, I think for for me to understand in that because for some people. It's really debilitating for others, it's not, but it's also a progressive mm. disease, right? Yeah. So it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Mm. But internally, you'd explain that to me then the way that is. Mm. I'd, uh, I'd not realised. So MS is, is primarily affects then the nervous system, the yeah. nerves, all yeah. over the body. Yeah. Yeah, so it attacks your brain and your central nervous system. What brings it on? Um, they don't know, to be honest. So for you, it could have been... So for you, talking about your autoimmune response to trauma, it could yeah. very well be a product of yeah. of that all that trauma in the past, your autoimmune yeah. system being compromised and leading on to something like MS. Yeah, probably. And for other people, it can just come out of the blue. Yeah. People just get the shit end of the stick. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, and I remember I was... Um, it was a few months after that, was, when did you get diagnosed? Sorry. So I was diagnosed a few months later because... How long ago was this? 2016 I was diagnosed. Okay. Um, so, and I remember I didn't tell the boys for ages because <laughs> as much as you, you, you wanted a normal life, you know, you've got these two mad people, <laughs> my parents, in the background being just trying to create use us to create this this perfect life that they wanted and we were trying to conduct our normal lives and just go you know go about life the the way it should be um and um it got very very stressful because suddenly my mother couldn't be center of attention and that was when it got really bad and that was when she started um the, the the sort of criminal behavior started which she didn't realize was criminal because you know my father just facilitated her all her life what do you mean criminal she attacked her and my children yeah and i didn't know until i was called down to the school physically attacked them yeah. while they were at home um yeah but i'd i'd been at work and my because I, I, I desperately wanted a, a relationship with my dad and I fooled myself for a really long time that my dad was a good guy and he'd come through for me in the end and I'd be a daddy's girl, which I've, you know, I'm still grieving for that, if I'm honest. I, I don't think that's something I'll ever completely get over. Mm. You know, my own dad actually rejecting me to my face is something I don't I've think... I've got daughters, you can see Yeah. Sorry. You well no, no, no. Because I can imagine um, got the thought of them having me. Yeah. Not that I'm the greatest dad in the world, but the thought of them having a complete asshole, complete bastard instead of me. Like the impact on them growing up that would be, and the, the, how sad that must be. Yeah. You know, sorry. So I'm crying for you, really. Do you want tissue? <laughs> no. No, I don't. I've always got loads on my book. I'm so sorry. No, I'm sorry. Go on. I feel really bad. <laughs> um. Yeah, so... um it's not the first time. <laughs> no, I know. 
Um, so yeah, um, but we'll sort of, we'll skim over that. But it, that was um, fine. You got no, no. It, it wasn't. It wasn't that at all. It was more coming on to. Um, so I, I threw myself into work and I threw myself into like real physical fitness because it did make me feel better. Um, and I think it didn't help as well. I went in, I went on to autopilot. So I had my, I had my diagnosis on the Tuesday and the Wednesday I went into work and they said, we're not anticipating a massive rush because it was May. So there's no winter pressures or anything. And we're fully staffed today and they've just phoned up to say one of the other wards, they haven't got enough staff. Does anyone want to go? And I just thought, I don't want to talk about what happened yesterday. I don't want to see my mates. I don't want to talk to anyone. I'll go. So I went up to this other ward and I got there and it was the neuro ward. And I thought, oh shit. Um, and they gave me this bay of six patients to look after. Five of the six bed-bound patients I was caring for had multiple sclerosis and four of them were tube-fed. And this was the day after I was diagnosed. And I was like, oh my God. Oh, you couldn't make it up, could you? You could not make it up. So, um, so yeah, anyway, I like I said, I threw myself into, into getting really fit. And... I could feel myself unravelling. Because I 2016, you said you got diagnosed. I'm sure that's about the same year I was diagnosed, about just by coincidence. Is it? Yeah, it's around about the same time. Sure, it was. Yeah, mm. yeah sure it was. Yeah, or just before 2015, maybe. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, and um, so it's like your your girlfriend's Best mate. mate yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've heard you talk about her before. I'm sure. No, I've not mentioned it before. I've not had anyone. Not? I've not had anyone on the podcast to discuss MS before, but I no. know about Anna's MS obviously because she's a friend. I say she's a friend. I don't, might... I don't see her very often, only because like. Oh, Anna. Anna. Yeah, I thought yeah. you said. Ha oh. I know. I know. I've heard somebody no, talk Anna. recently about someone called um, Hannah with MS. So that's that was why I was making the, the, oh, the wrong sorry, connection. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, yeah. Okay, um, yeah. So I could. I suppose it's 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 that trauma that that Mandy talked about, isn't it? Of um, you've got you've got this diagnosis and you're constantly adapting and you've um i was offered pretty much straight away i was offered something called lemtrada which is a form of chemotherapy mm -hmm. and it's the the gold standard there's nothing else that you can have and it basically wipes out your immune system temporarily so it gets rid of the antibodies that attack your brain and your central nervous system which is why I don't eat meat anymore I don't I don't do the things that will replace the antibodies and I do there's, there's this really good plan called the overcoming multiple sclerosis plan which I'll talk to, talk about in a sec but so um where was I I keep doing this don't I are you talking about coping with uh, MS yeah so I was I, I was doing all of the all of the right things eating the right food had my um had my first did I have my first round of chemo by then no it's before my first round of chemo but I was offered this chemo um and most people are offered it sort of fourth or fifth line when they're really really bad um and I remember saying to the MS nurses why have I been offered this now and she said, well, 
It's one of those questions we only answer it honestly if we're asked the question outright. She said, but basically it's because of where it is in your brain. She said, so that's the thing for me is I know that when secondary progressive MS hits, which is why I work so hard to keep it at bay, that it will be a bit more like motor neurone disease because of where the lesions are in my brain. So I'll, I'll where in the brain is it? Quite close to my brain stem. Okay. So I'll lose my mobility and I'll lose my speech and then I'll lose my swallow. So when I do go, it'll be pneumonia because I won't be able to stop stuff going into my lungs. So, yeah, it's... um. That's why I work. Are you able to stop the progress of the MS? And that's what, I'm do, that's what I'm working so hard at now. Yeah, it's keeping it at bay. Yeah, so I had... So, yeah, so I was booked in for my chemo. So I'd got all of this, like, stacked trauma. So I'd got what, what had happened with my... With the children. And just how catastrophic that, that had been. So that was really traumatic. And... Um, Obviously, the diagnosis had been traumatic and trying to deal with all these, spin all these plates, basically, of dealing with the diagnosis and how I was going to deal with it going forward. And, you know, you'd wake up in the morning and you'd think, oh, my God, does this mean? Because and then it turned out you just slept on your arm. But do you know what I mean? It's it's that that fear. Oh, that, wake that's, up the numb arm and think it's Yeah. Progressed. Oh, my okay, God. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's it's those it's those mini traumas that are stacking on top of everything. And I, I was in work the one day, um, and like I say, I was leading. I was clinical lead on the shift. I was working, um, and I was stood I was stood by the nurses' station, and I heard these footsteps come through the ambulance doors. And normally, there's a load of clatter because it's paramedics with someone on a trolley, but it was literally just panicked footsteps came through the ambulance doors and I turned around I've got a student nurse with me and um, I said um, I looked at this this girl and she got this little boy in her arms and um, he'd got a, a little cut just here above his eye just and it was on his eyelid yeah just yeah. yeah just in the crease of his eye on his on the right just sort of quite close to his nose and um I was a bit smug at first because I just thought, oh, bless her. You know, she's panicking. He's run into a table because toddler versus table, sort of facial injuries is really, really common. And I've got my student nurse with me and obviously I didn't want her to panic. So I said, oh, come on, sweetheart. So I went and sat her down in a cubicle and I was rubbing her, her back and I was going, look, you know, these things happen all the time. Um, you know, tell me what's happened and, and we'll sort him out. And, um, this is the mum. This is the mum, this yeah. is, I'm talking to the mum, and I've got my student nurse stood next to me, and I went, tell me what's happened, and um, she looked at me, and I could feel that the, ha the hair on the ar my arms was standing on end, and I was like, why is this? Something's not right. And on the back of my neck, you know, you get that icy feeling down the middle of your shoulder blades, and I'm thinking, something's really not right here. And this mum, she looked at me, and she's got this little boy, and he started to go a bit quiet, he was screaming his head off when he came in. I'm just like, oh, God, something's really wrong here. And I said, come on, tell me what's happened. She went, he's been shot. Shot? I went, sorry? She went, he's been shot. 
And I said, and that's what that wound is on his eye? She went, yes. I remember, you know, when everything slows down, you get that tunnel vision and just everything for a split second stops. And then everything speeds up again and you're like, oh my God. So I just went, and I remember saying to the student nurse, I said, right, I want five milligrams of diamorphine and one mil syringe, a nasal cannula, five mils of water for injection, and the most senior doctor you can find. Was it a pellet gun, was it? No. What was it, a tutu or something? Yeah. A proper tutu rifle. Oh, my God. And so then we managed to deal with this little boy, and he's our priority because we're clinicians, and then all of a sudden it twigs. And I said, you ran here. I said, where have you come from? She lived, said, we live just over the road. So I was just like, oh my God, I've got a maniac with a rifle who hasn't thought anything about putting a bullet in his own kid wandering around within walking distance of the hospital. Mm. So then we had to sort of like declare a major incident and shut all the entrances down. Police were notified. But because I was doing my job, I was all right at that point. But because there was a firearm involved and I had to phone the police and because it was a minor, I obviously had to phone social services. And when I phoned social services, I had a on-call social worker and it was her first, she was, she was newly qualified and it was her first date on her own. <laughs> and when I explained what had happened, I heard this poor girl on the end of the phone go into shock. And... You know when you're on your own and you've got somebody on the end of the phone, you just don't want them to hang up. And she was, you could tell she was like pleading with me, don't hang up because I don't know how to cope with this because I just... And in her panic to keep me on the phone, she read this... Because she'd obviously got it on the computer in front of me. She read this family's entire rap sheet with social services. And it was everything you can imagine. And I just remember... I just went, I know what it's like to be this kid trapped in this house knowing that help isn't coming. Mm. Um, and it, it was his brothers and sisters as well. It wasn't just this, this, this kid. And I just thought... And that was what... And it was literally like this... I describe it like a big a concrete bunker inside my head. All of the trauma, everything. I'd packed it all away and I just felt the walls crumble and I just I couldn't build it back up I couldn't put it together and I realize now that I went into full-blown panic but I didn't know because I, I couldn't label my own feelings and I didn't know what I was feeling I just had to carry on and please everyone else around me so I dealt with that situation and about two hours later I had a young girl come in who was um she was she was miscarrying and she was only a teenager and she'd got this lovely lovely family and she her and her you know her and her boyfriend a young boyfriend had made a bit of a mistake and but the family's attitude was we don't care we've got a baby on the way we're going to make the most of it um they sorted out this this couple's living arrangements they were looking after both in they were making sure that they could both still go to school they could go to university um and they were actually really looking forward to this baby and all they cared about was that she was okay 
that was all this entire family his parents her parents and grandparents everyone was there and I remember just standing there in recess um, and I, I couldn't label how I felt but I just felt totally overwhelmed because I was stood in a room with all this love and support that I'd never ever had three hours late three hours earlier I I'd been back in my childhood bedroom waiting for help that I knew was never going to come like that little boy and then I was confronted with something I'd never had that I desperately wanted and it just completely broke me I was never the same after that day I was I just wasn't just never the same after that day um and that was when I look back and like I say, my, my second husband, who I was I was with then, totally unsympathetic because it wasn't about him. You know, I, and I didn't have anyone to talk to, I didn't have anyone to offload to, I didn't have anyone to say, this is, this is, this is how you should feel, this is normal. And that was when I started to sort of decline into this, negative thinking about myself you know this this feeling of total worthlessness well, after that day mm. yeah i can actually because you went back so so you went back kind of in memory to experiencing yeah. the, the bad times then you saw what you could have had should have had yeah with that amazing family wanting to look yeah. after the daughter yeah and then it got and then you went downhill from there yeah it was literally those but because of a lack of self-worth you, you're blaming yourself no, no, I just, it was literally like those two total extremes. I couldn't cope. Mm. My, my, my nervous system just could not cope with those two complete extremes. Yeah. You know, what I did have, you know, I was presented what, what I did have and like you say, what I should have had within the space of three or four hours. And I just wasn't the same after that. And that was when it sort of spiralled down um, or I spiralled down, and it was just this this loss of self worth. This, you know, typical symptoms: crying, you know, uncontrollable crying, feeling that I wasn't worth being around my my kids; that they'd be better off without me because um, poor self care. And I remember it's all, it almost got to the point where I just thought, well. He clearly knows that I'm not I'm not worth it because he'd be acting surely he'd be acting differently if I if I was. Um so it was so for example I had to have a second round of chemotherapy and at the time um we'd moved so I was doing agency and bank work um rather than um contracted bank work. It's it's basically Every hospital will have a staff bank that right. they dip into. So you don't have a permanent contract, but you're still in the NHS. So it meant I could keep my pension. So I was doing bank and agency in A&E. But if I didn't work, I didn't get paid. So if I went to get my second round of chemo, you wouldn't get a job. So I should have had three months off when I had my each round of chemo. And the second one, I had two weeks because... We had no money coming in, and he wouldn't go and get a job. So I, I had to get out of bed after chemo and go out and 
oh earn money two weeks after I, and you know that's the point at which I should have gone there's something really wrong here but my self-esteem and my self-worth was so low I actually blamed myself for the situation and then a few full time full time after two weeks I've got a, I've got a friend who's not long off the back of uh, like a, a long uh, a bunch of different mm. chemotherapy what you call them courses mm. over the last year I think, was, I think his last one was maybe 11 months ago. Mm. I spoke to him a month ago, and he's still only in work two or three days a week, mm. you know, as opposed to five days a week. I'm just to put it in perspective, for people who don't understand going back to work full-time after just two weeks of chemo. That's, yeah. that's crazy. And Dangerous it, as well. Yeah. Dangerous as well, right? Because I was immunocompromised. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then a few months after that, I had... Um, I had a miscarriage and again I was in hospital for a week luckily my own hospital so I was amongst friends which was which was nice um, but I was in hospital for a week so I was really ill I nearly bled to death and then five days after I got out of hospital I was back at work and again it was just that that sense of self-worth was just so low I couldn't yeah, I just—it was almost like I felt like I deserved it. What was this guy doing with his time if he wasn't working? Just sat around watching box sets. He was supposed to be—he was supposed to be doing the house up. He was supposed to be doing the house up. Um, because that was—that was what we was. He—he he trained as a foster parent, and there was always an excuse why we we hadn't got kids with us because I'd kept my registration I kept working so that we'd got a fallback for when we didn't have children with us so he was going to be this this was how he marketed it to me he was going to be the full-time foster carer and we got the room and we got the training and we got the wherewithal and then um but there was all there was always an excuse and it was just like well why don't you get a job then well but he never would um and he said well I, I'm, I'm going to do the ha I'm the one that's going to do the work to the house it's all cosmetic um but yeah he just he did absolutely nothing he just sat around all the time in my dressing gown I don't know why that annoyed me so much but I burned it <laughs> last year I burned it and I loved burning that dressing gown but anyway um it just makes you sound like such an idiot when you say it out loud I just feel so stupid but you're you're I think so it's what it represents right yeah you know. it does but then like I say, that was when it just it just spiralled down and down. And I was just giving so much of myself. I'd just got nothing left to give and I was just exhausted with it. I was totally exhausted with it. Um, and I was trying to give... I just didn't feel like I deserved anything myself. I just had to give to the kids, give to him, give to my patients... Um, and my employers and and that was all I was worth I wasn't I, I had to put my own needs and, and everything to one side um, and it's like I say I it culminated in that day when I was sitting in the car park going the kids are better off without me he's a better person than me because I'm just I just felt lower I just felt the lowest of the low I felt horrendous and I just, and it culminated with me sitting in the car that day when my mate texted me and I was honest with him and I said, I'm not good and this is why. 
and I that was when I went to Rock to Recovery and it was the biggest eye opener. The, when I when I had that first meeting, which was really quickly after I contacted them, it was it was like this It was like this fog cleared. I think that's the best way to describe it. And um Yeah, it was incredible. It was it was instant. It was instant the way I the way I felt because I'd suddenly got this tool to reframe to 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 so what Jamie gave me was the ability to understand that the things that had happened and the meaning it, it was the meaning that I gave to to words and deeds and actions and the things that had happened to me that changed my perspective on them and over that time and I've got it written on my mirror in you know those chalk pens um I am not my mind sky not weather and I look at that every morning and I think because that's what that's what rock to recovery helped me to do this tool that they've given me because when when Mandy talked about um how when the system gets so dysregulated when you have that many basically brushes with death when your polyvagal nerve you know you, you've got your um your basal ganglion and then your polyvagal nerve kicks in and then you're just like I am going to die so you know the, and all of those systems are breached I never had that acknowledgement that those systems have been breached so that damage was done so that damage that because really what, what Mandy is talking about is preventative medicine so I am one of those people that's so far down the line so that you, you can't really practice that with me the damage is there so it's how do you deal with that damage? And what Rock to Recovery gave me was the understanding that my mind was controlling my my body and these physiological processes. But I am not my mind. I am Sam, who sits in this body. And if I look at my mind as a separate entity, you're talking I've got your mind. more control. When, you say, when you're saying your mind, you're talking about your mind in the physical sense. Yeah. Right, okay. I can just yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With those physiological processes. Yeah. So, and understand that that mind has an effect. So if I separate me from my mind, I've got control over my mind rather than it controlling me. And that's how I go about it. So I've had to stand back and go, okay, so how do I, how do I control these physical... What stops, what switches my mind off, basically, so that I can be present in myself and look at my mind as a separate entity and ask myself, what is my mind doing at the moment that it shouldn't be that's making me feel this way? Um, and so I stopped drinking almost straight away. So I was only drinking because of the, the, the trauma. So stopped drinking. That was a really bad thing. Not for me, for my now ex, because I realised it was one less thing to sort of control me or make me feel bad about. And the fact I didn't, I didn't miss it and it wasn't hard to give up drinking as well was a sign of 
the fact I wasn't dependent, I wasn't drinking too much, I was just drinking when I needed it. Um, and alcohol makes me really ill now, can't stand it. Um, so I stopped drinking and I started swimming and the colder the water the better. And that was by accident because we had a direct a, a memo come through and I think it was the MS Society said about, they sort of marketed it as cold water immersion therapy because if you have, um, because they didn't want to put people off who hadn't got access to cold water, for example, you know, to a, a river or a stream or an ice bath or whatever, you can just run cold water in your bath or have a cold shower. Um, and I thought, well, I've got this lovely lake at the top of the village Oh, I've got the river just over there because the boys are in the river all the time from sort of May to September. Um, so I started swimming every day. It's amazing. It literally, you're in the best way possible. When you get into cold water, your brain just goes into survival mode. You cannot think of anything else. It's just... Yeah, it's I've done the, it a few times. Done yeah. Few times. I've done it with... Um, a lady called Anna Goff, who yeah, uh, I, I she has got a cold water immersion therapy in Milton Keynes, and then I've got a friend who who suffers really badly with anxiety and uh, well, PTSD and um, and the symptoms associated with thereof, and he does or has done regularly in the past in a river in Swansea. Goes and gets in the river in Swansea. That's where I went and first tried it actually. With is it? It. Yeah, in, as in in the wild. Yeah. In the commas, I lasted about. 30 seconds he was fine there but then when I went to and did it with Anna mm. it was five six seven minutes I think it was in for mm. but um, yeah I, I see the appeal I see mm. I, I see the appeal 100% and uh, because well the way I look at it is one from, from this is what I think I get from anyway one is the there's a physiological benefit, benefit yeah. I think it's getting really cold and, and your body having to then take action to recover from that and get warm again I think it's a mm. really that's yeah, the same reason I like the sauna get really hot and then cooling itself down or fighting to stay cool but the other one is it's, it's just as basically this it's a challenge it is not nice mm. it's not nice i don't want to do it i'm going to make myself do it oh i did it oh my god i feel so good yeah <laughs> it's like that you know that that's simple that's simple that's how i get what i get from it anyway but that but then it's uh sounds like you get a lot more yeah and it's it's because it's like this this little lake in the middle of nowhere um and it's quite cool all year round because it's it's tarn fed, so it's a little tarn, so it's spring fed from the bottom. So of course, the water's been through the ground, so it's quite cool when it comes up. So you get like a thermal thermal layer at the top in the, in the summer, but it is it's pretty cold. And I go up there and I take my Kelly kettle and make myself a brew while I'm in the water, and it's just like a little ritual. Just the, the things that keep me up there for longer, just in this, this... You make a brew while you're in the water? Well, I leave the kettle boiling while I'm in the water. Yeah. And then yeah. pour it and you have the brew while you're still in the water? Sometimes. I have done I have done before. I'll, I'll go back in, I'll, I'll pick my mug up and I'll go back in. That's quite nice, actually. I quite enjoy that. But I tend to, I tend to, you know, while I'm... The kettle's boiling while I'm in and then I get out. I've got um, one of those Aldi freezer bags. You know the bags that you put all your freezer stuff in? Yeah. I've got my... I, I've got one of those because it's all foil lined and I put a hot water bottle in it, wrap my dry robe in a hot water bottle and put my, my dry robe in a freezer bag so it's nice and warm and I, nice. I've got all these little tricks. You're a pro. Oh, I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, and I'll go everywhere. I'm swimming just for, my, just for fun at the moment because of the MS. I can't do... 
I can't run or walk the dragon's back anymore, unfortunately, which is, um, you'll have heard of it if you like, if you, if you like montane stuff, but the dragon's back, it's a fell race from Carnarvon Castle to Cardiff Castle along the mountainous spine of Wales. Um, but and they do it in six days. Um, and then they just they do little have you seen they do the little reports for the years of the through the year of the athletes who completed the previous year's race oh, okay. and like six nine months later you know the sort of top five still haven't recovered mm. um but there's i couldn't i couldn't walk or run run it anymore probably but as long as i've got cold water to get into at some point i can I can still climb mountains and do stuff. I did Cader Idris the other week and um, a couple of weeks before that, I did the Watkin path pools. That was incredible. That was like a spa day. Um, but so I've decided to swim the dragon's back. So I'm just going to walk up and swim in every body of water I can find oh, cool. along the dragon's back. And my middle son, who is a brilliant artist, is doing a map of Wales on the wall in the hall at the moment and we're going to cover it in magnetic varnish so I can stick pins oh, in it. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I'm just doing that. I, I mean, if anyone came along and said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll sponsor you or promote you to do it or whatever, then I'd, I'd, I, I wouldn't say no, but for the moment I'm just doing it for me. I'm not yeah. doing it for any other and, reason. And you know what? And sometimes it's all it needs to be. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, sometimes it all all it needs to be. I get, I get a lot of people who are, I think get a lot of people who they feel like they want to do something challenging, but then they feel obliged because other people do it. They feel obliged that they have to turn it into a fundraising event. Or what's the point? Mm. And then I and and I like I see the benefit of that, but also I see well, hang on a minute. Just keep it for yourself. It's okay to be that selfish. Keep it for yourself. Why? Why make it about mm. anything else? And additionally, put the pressure on yourself. Exactly. You know what I mean? Just do it for yourself, man. That's that is mm. it. So, and then maybe the next time, if you like doing it and going to do it again or something similar, maybe think about it the next time. But Yeah, you know. I mean, it's probably going to take me years. But, yeah. I mean, that's something that I've I've got to look forward to. No, you've got six days. You've got six days. <laughs> to swim every body of water along. Yeah, I was thinking of the logistics of it. I've nearly, yeah, I've, um, oh, God, I've got hypothermia. It's a lot of bruise, that. It's a lot of bruise. Oh, I know. God. You're going to need more than one dry rope. Yeah, yeah. I am. Yeah, if anyone's listening who wants to give me an extra dry rope. We're going to start up this up in a minute. Yeah, sorry about that. No, I don't apologise. Listen, it's been really interesting to listen to it. Like, and um, and uh, I think really useful as well. Like, this is So Hannah came in again. She was in yesterday. Oh, was she? Yeah, so she came in again. Um, because the first, time, so the first time she came in, because we didn't get around to talking about what she wanted to talk about as in all the art and that side of stuff yeah. which I was really interested in we ended up on the on the narcissism so, oh you've listened to the podcast anyway, mm. so she came back in and we did touch on it again so it's interesting to get a, another perspective on that from someone else who's been through yeah. a similar experience from yourself so it's, honestly really thoroughly enjoyed it thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and the benefit people are going to get from it it was very difficult listening at times and I um, and uh, I mean you're in a you're an incredibly inspiring individual. I know that. And you, you're thinking about yeah, a book in the works, right? Is a yeah. book in the works? Do you want to mention that or not? Yeah, I can do it. But again, it's 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 quite difficult writing. So I haven't... I can imagine, yeah. I haven't taken on a commission for it simply because I didn't want to be 
pressed with a time scale, but um, it's uh, it's called An Angel from Demons, and it's um, I was determined when I was when it was sort of the idea was put to me about writing it. I said, well, I'm not writing a misery memoir because that's just yeah. I don't want to, I don't I don't just want to write about being miserable and I thought I see the world very differently because of the work because of the things that happened to me the way my brain was wired um my, well my mind was wired not me my mind which is a, a separate entity altogether um and I um I think so what what it's actually about is although I have talked about the things that have happened to me I've actually related them to to the people that I've helped in order you know to to sort of demonstrate that it isn't such a bad thing you need people like me out there I you know I, I know that I had a pretty crap time of it and but I didn't know any different so it's not like I had this idyllic childhood and then it all exploded I've had the tools since I was since before I can remember, since I had language or the ability to walk, I've had the tools to to do these things, make these assessments, stay alive. So I know no different. So it's not it's not this miserable existence for me. It's how I've I've used the experiences I've had for good, really. Mm. So that's um, and the, the the situations that I've related. The, the the various things that happened to me and the sort of the attempts on my life and things and how I've I've spotted you know maybe frequent flyers as we we term them at work or um, I'm the person that spotted someone's acute distress when actually it's, it it looks like they're presenting with a medical condition. Frequent flyers, sorry. Frequent. Yeah, it's just people that come in again and again and again and you don't you know they're not necessarily. Um, they're not attention-seeking. They just come in with the same problem, and it's treated as an entirely medical problem. Mm. Um, and then they come in with the same thing. So all you're doing is just, like, masking the symptoms and sending them home. You're not actually getting to the root cause of the problem. And it's when you get to the root cause of the problem that um, you you actually stop them constantly coming in because you've 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 dealt with the the root cause got it yeah okay um two questions so yeah. uh what would you suggest is a good resource to for people to go to to either understand or deal with uh abusive relationships that they're maybe in and the second one same question for ms um so or if they think they may be in an abusive relationship we're not sure yeah i think a lot of people when they're they're in it, they don't they don't realise. They don't realise. Um, a lot of them think it's their their problem. So I would say there's a really good resource online called the Freedom Program. And there is a so if somebody suspects that they are, or if they're they're not comfortable in their relationship and they don't know if they're in an abusive relationship at all there's a brilliant book and you can read it you can read it online and you can read it there's like a secret setting I think so that other people can't find it um so you can read it without anyone knowing that you've read it and it's called 
Living with the Dominator. You can buy the book anywhere. And it basically describes the different types. And there's overlaps as well between the different types. Um, And it's by a woman called Pat Craven. And that's a really good place to start. And then, obviously, Women's Aid are absolutely brilliant. If you can phone them up anonymously or there's the Penny Appeal um, Domestic Abuse Helpline. And if you suspect that you're experiencing domestic abuse, you can you can go to them. Um, and they'll signpost you and they'll tell you straight out, no, that is abuse, that isn't abuse. But nine times out, well, 100% of the time, if you think you're being abused and you, you're feeling that bad that you pick up the phone to someone like Women's Aid... Um, you can guarantee that that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And you well, can ask for Annie in, in places like Boots uh, and supermarkets if you actually feel directly threatened. My uh, uh, just fascinating fact, my, my old man, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting subject to me. Uh, one that I wish didn't exist in terms of like w- w- women in abusive relationships, mm. abusive husbands for whatever reason. But my, my old man, when he was, when he was younger... Uh, he went and he used to, he used to volunteer, or he did volunteer. I might be pushing this story, this story, sorry, Dad, but he used to volunteer on the first ever women's uh, aid hostel in London. And I mm. forget the bloody name of it. Forget the name of it. Yeah, and there's reasons. There's reasons he used to volunteer there. Um, and there's a there's a, a future guest coming on. Actually, it was a bloke who is going to be who's. Not a dissimilar, not a dissimilar upbringing to yourself. Mm. Not dissimilar at all. So, uh, I mean, it's like, uh, it's fascinating to listen to you for all the wrong reasons. It's very insightful uh, for people to listen to, I think, especially for people who who are on the peripheries and may think they see something like that going on or maybe not. It just helps them understand that better. Um, uh, But it's just just upsetting that. And it's like when I was, I got upset earlier doing it again now because with my daughters is that thinking that there's people like you were in that situation there's people that, there's kids in that situation now yeah there's kids, kids in that situation now and it's just when you think about that what their mm. lives must be like you know there's, there's a little you again now yeah going through a similar situation as as rare as that well is it rare I don't know but it exists you can't and that's just uh I just, I just wish it didn't exist. I just wish it didn't exist. Mm. Like, I wish you didn't have to go through that y- yourself at all. I wish other people don't. However, back to the point you made just now, is like uh, the benefit you bring to other people by being able to sit here and talk about it. Yeah. So you've gone through all that crap, which is horrendous, mm. but and, and yet there's some good coming out of it because mm. of the way you articulate your experiences, the way you articulate how it came about, and, uh, and that ultimately helps people, I think. Yeah. Will help people, you know, which is a great to hear that, you know, there's a book in the pipeline, definitely. And women's aid will signpost men as well who are experiencing domestic abuse. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, just because you're a... Um, they'll signpost you to different resources, but they will... They, they won't turn you away if you're a guy because it's, it's more common than you'd think. Not more common than you think. What about MS resources? The MS Society are absolutely brilliant. Um, they've got a huge wealth of information online. Um, and you'll find each each county in each area have um, 
like a really good regional centre and there's 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 clubs and um I'm part of one I find it quite hard going though because everyone's more affected than me and they're all in couples and I just think I, I go along because it's useful to know who's but I don't go very often it's it's like a lunch once once a once a week I think it is yeah. on a Tuesday and I probably go about once every six or seven weeks just to sort of touch base and sort of see people but I just because I do push myself because you know because I'm on my own with the boys and my I suppose my my biggest I'm not scared of dying but my biggest fear is that I will succumb to this before the boys are old enough not to need me and um like I say the resources are brilliant but it's I couldn't give people an awful lot of feedback about those because I'm at a stage where I try and avoid them because it's too much of a smack in the face of kind of what's coming Mm. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah it makes total sense yeah yeah it makes total sense yeah so yeah yeah so that's it thank you for coming in talking about it I know it's not been easy um and uh I didn't cry though. I'm amazed. They got me bloody crying. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> you nearly cried in the icebreaker. I did actually. You nearly cried in the icebreaker. <laughs> it's a bit of a I should have uh, knowing what was coming later. You're going to make me cry on on this. I should have got you crying. I should have yeah, pushed a little bit harder on the icebreaker. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, how can people get hold of you or find you if they want to get in touch with you? Um, can they? Yes, Discord is probably the best place at the moment because I am a bit. I'm a bit of a recluse. <laughs> um, yeah, I do hide my light under a bushel. I'm going to make more of an effort because with the... I've really gotten into... With the wild swimming, I've really got into photography and um, sort of self-portraiture as well on all my a lot of my swims. Um, and I might hopefully having an exhibition locally, just a little art gallery locally of my sort of journey, for want of a better word. Um, and that's a plug I will give because every as as a resource for for help and support with things like MS, every county will have a young carers association. And uh, Credi, which is Powys Young Carers, have been absolutely amazing for my boys. And they do a lot with the arts as well to support to support kids and parents. And it's Credi that are helping me with support in writing and publishing the book and also um, starting off with the exhibition of my photography work. And I would say that as a resource, if you've if you've got MS, um, your local young carers association, if you've got kids, is a really good place to start because because the kids are generally if it if if you go to a young carers association because it's a parent that's affected, you you tend to get it's a it's a it's a much livelier place than going to say an MS meeting and sort of being confronted by people that have got the same condition than you who are further down the line and sicker. Whereas you've you've got 
kids of all ages running around and you've got parents with different conditions but you've still got the support there you've still got someone that understands so my middle son who was really struggling at one point made really good mates with a lad who now volunteers for them because he's he's in his early 20s now and they've actually become really good mates and his mum has ms um, so that's a really good resource as well when I think about it. And are, they so, ever, are the Young Carers Associations everywhere, are they? Yeah, Every, yeah. Okay. If you look up Young Carers for your county, yeah. but you asked me how people could get hold of me. So in the first instance, probably Discord is the best place. Um, and Which servers are you in apart from H-Hour? Um, the SEG group okay, as so well. Okay, so Sinita's Guild Discord server and the H-Hour Discord yeah. server. Yeah, all right. And Facebook, if you're not friends with me, I've obviously got Messenger, you can find me. Discord's I'm, a good spot. I like Discord yeah, because, I do, because you can maintain a level of pseudonymity in there, or a complete anonymity if you yeah. want. Now people can come and find you. There's no, uh, they're not able to... Yeah. You're not able to, like, uh, so if people come and connect with you on Discord, you know, like they don't have access to your phone number, they don't have access to your email address. It's just, it's, but yeah. they got access to you directly. Yeah. And you can control that either way. It's, it's, it's yeah. a great platform. And I, I really need to get out there more in terms of things like promoting the swimming and the um, the artwork, the, the photography, because... But I'm, I'm like a lot of people who've got a background like mine is that I, I don't like to stick my head over the parapet, but I should. I should. I should be a lot more, a lot more proactive. So I'm, I do have an Instagram account. Um, but uh, yeah, it's probably easy. I'm um, Clueith on Discord. So that's double L I. W E double B. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's my favourite mountain. Good Welsh name. Good yeah. Welsh name. It's right next to Snowdon. Looks like something out of Lord of the Rings. You should. Uh, where's your TikTok account? You should get a TikTok account. I don't. Though. I Bear don't in mind have that one. you do the knitting yeah. as well, and all the, and the yeah. and you're making clothes. Yeah. If I, I'm telling you, there is a market on TikTok. There will be a market on TikTok for people watching time lapse videos of you making a scarf. Or oh, you're knitting me a, a hat as well, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I'm knitting I'm you very, a hat. I appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, of of knitting something, people would lap that up on TikTok. I'm telling you now. Really? Yeah. Or time lapse video you swimming around the swimming around the lake. I'm telling you, TikTok is the place to be. 100%. Really? Fuck Instagram. Yeah. Well, you were gonna. I was gonna send you the um, the Jedi funeral for you to to. Oh, put the up Jedi on. funeral. Yeah. Well, put that in Discord. Well, yeah. I wanted to play it on the podcast. I got no way of doing it now. Yeah. No. I've got like I've literally. About, I'll send it to you. Yeah. Do you know what? I might. In fact, I tell you what I'll do. At the end of this, when this video finishes, I'll put it, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll snip it on the end. <laughs> so after we switch off now, it'll go straight into a video that uh, Sam's sons did of, uh, they, you were away, weren't you? You were yeah. away, and they, 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 your hamster sadly died. Oh, sad face. Yeah. Yeah. And they give it a Jedi funeral, <laughs> right? Stay on and watch this video. It is fucking class. <laughs> yes, well done, sound boys. And uh, thank you again for coming on. Pleasure. Pleasure. That's it. If you enjoyed this episode, why not become a H-Hour patron? H-Hour patrons get exclusive access to premium content. There are private interviews with previous guests and with this guest that nobody will see except for the H-Hour patrons. So before this podcast was recorded, 
I recorded an exclusive Q&A, a shorter interview structured around eight questions. All the questions were chosen by patrons beforehand, and that interview is online now for patrons. That happens every time. Patrons also get access to all of the episodes before anyone else. They get advanced viewing of the episodes. And you also get other perks and bonuses. All of the information is on charliecharlie1.com. Just hit the menu item, become a patron. It'll show you everything there, including access to the H Hour Discord community and private patron-only channels on there. So go to charliecharlie1.com and hit the menu item, become a patron. Easy peasy. Thank you for being a supporter. Subscribe to the channel, and I will catch you on the next episode. Thanks.